0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: Earlier this year, the Defense Department issued a new policy to streamline appeals by people trying to become eligible to access classified information. All of the appeals are about to be heard by an office known as the Defense Office of Hearings and Appeals, or DOHA. The process cuts out four other agencies with an interest in access to classified. For why this is all crucial, we turn to Tully Rinky attorney Ryan Nerney. Mr. Nerney, good to have you on.
0: Thank you, sir. Good to be here.
1: Tell us what part of the whole vast apparatus of security clearance are we talking about here? Just set the context so we know where this all fits in.
0: Sure. So this memo is specifically going to or addressing the adjudication for a clearance if government contractors under the DOD purview have been denied a security clearance, specifically sensitive compartment information.
1: Got it. So they get a couple of levels of review then once they have been denied?
0: Correct. So this memo, actually, it does not remove the first-level review from the agencies. It only removes the second-level review. So to give you kind of an example, um, this memo essentially instructs the sub-agencies. Specifically, we're talking about the intelligence community, such as the NSA, the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and the NRO, to send all their second-level reviews to Doha. So they're losing a little bit of power in that regard but they still get to to have that first-level review. And if that first-level review is not favorable to the contractor, then that's when it proceeds to Doha.
1: I see. So those four agencies could say, yeah, it's fine, go ahead, and then Doha would never see it. Correct. Do we have any sense of the quantity of types of cases that happen every year in this whole process of denial and then adjudication?
0: Yeah, I mean there there honestly there's a number of cases. What they do is they lay out so there's 13 adjudicative guidelines that these agencies or the adjudicators look at and that could be anywhere from, you know, personal debt, uh, personal delinquent debt or marijuana use, you know, alcohol, criminal conduct, things like that. I mean there's hundreds and honestly, thousands of cases that are reviewed every year. And, you know, a certain number of those go through the actual adjudicative process, which actually end up getting to the second level review, which in this case would would eventually go to Doha.
1: So then what was divided among four agencies will now be all done by one agency. Do we know whether Doha has the capacity to take on what used to be done by the four agencies that are still part of it, but don't get the final say?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. So at this point, I mean, I definitely think that because they're meeting Doha, they're going to be getting a lot more work. That they're probably going to have to hire a, a number of other, probably administrative judges and attorneys as well. But the good news is, is that uh, you know this memo is not going into effect until sometime in September 2022. So that gives that agency the ability to get the resources that it needs in order to accomplish the goals without having a significant delay.
1: And was this change ordered by one of the National Defense Authorization Act, or this is something DOD is doing on its own?
0: This is something that DOD is doing on its own. I believe it was the uh, Undersecretary of Defense who issued the memorandum. So that's the one that is, is basically directing all these intelligence agencies to do this.
1: We're speaking with Ryan Nerney. He's an attorney with the law firm Tully Rinky. I guess the bigger question is, why did DOD feel the need to consolidate all of the second-line reviews in one agency? instead of just leaving them at the four agencies that had them in the first place.
0: Yeah, I think one of the the main aspects is is that it would essentially create a single uh, authority for appeals, which would provide a more clear picture as far as what does and does not disqualify somebody for receiving an SCI security clearance. So I think it basically just um, provides more of a, a consensus as far as, you know, what the eligibility criteria
1: were or are. In other words, more consistent application of the criteria at that second level of review. Correct. You mentioned some of the criteria. How many are there, and who sets those?
0: So There's 13 criteria, and that was actually an executive order that was issued a while ago, but it's essentially 13 criteria that was laid out, and there's actually a number of guidelines for this specific memo. The one that's really going to take hold is going to be DOD Directive 5220.6, and that lays out the 13 adjudicative guidelines, which, as I mentioned before, could be anything from you know, personal debt, which is guideline F for financial considerations, up to you know guideline G, which is alcohol consumption, foreign influence. There's there's a litany of allegations that could be levied against an individual trying to get eligibility for a security clearance. And there's a number of disqualifying conditions under each guideline and a number of mitigating conditions under each guideline.
1: Well, I guess then some of the criteria, some of the disqualifications, are probably black and white. If you rob a bank and are convicted, probably that would Knock you out. But some of them sound like when you mention guidelines, there's some wiggle room in there. Like who's to decide how much debt is too much for a given individual, for example. So do they have that kind of ability to interpret and not just simply go no go type of black and white criteria?
0: Absolutely. There, there is some wiggle room. You know, there, there's not really black and white as far as the mitigation goes. You know, and that's why it's important to really have this second level review under a single appeals authority, because, like I said, that really brings a consensus as far as, you know, what really what an individual should have or not have as far as security planning.
1: I was going to say financial matters like debt, for example, those are usually available in publicly available subscription databases. But what about things like alcohol use or foreign insurance? Influence. Where would an agency find such information about someone unless it was disclosed by somebody else?
0: You start getting a security clearance by filling out a form called a Standard Form 86, and it's a series of questions that go through. I believe it's 26 different sections, going anywhere from where you've lived in the past 10 years to any criminal conduct. If you've used any illegal drugs in the last seven years, things like that. So that's where they get some of the information. And then they normally have a follow-up interview by an investigator who basically goes through that entire form with an individual to, to get some of that information. There's also other individuals who can be interviewed about the person that's trying to get eligibility for a security clearance. So they can get it through, we'll call that the background check, prior to even going through the adjudicative process.
1: So that's when you get into some of those gray areas. For example, if someone says, yes, well, I'm an alcoholic, but I have been clean for five years and going to AA every week, for example, then they could decide, well, okay, then that doesn't seem to be a problem. Or they could say it is a problem.
0: Absolutely. And that's kind of where the mitigation comes in. So, you know, perfect example, if somebody has been going to AA for a while, you know, they're going to counseling you know, they've had a problem in the past, but that problem is is what they call under control, then, you know, they have a a lot better chance to either obtain or maintain a security clearance.
1: That spells out the picture a little more clearly, but the basic thing here is that second-level review going to the Doha, Defense Office of Hearings and Appeals, but there's a year and a half before that actually takes effect.
0: Give or take, but yeah, it is is quite a while. We're hoping that, you know, if they streamline this, Doha may speed things up a little bit. You know, NSA by itself, you know they have a first and second review at this point you know that can take two years and more so hopefully it'll speed it up a little bit by by going to doha but you're correct about a year and a half is is a is a good uh, is a good guesstimate as far as um the amount of time it takes
1: but i mean the doha doesn't take over these second level reviews until a year and a half from now
0: correct the contractors are still going to have to sit and stay with their respective agencies for the first and second level review until September 2022 comes around when this change takes effect.
1: Ryan Nerney is an attorney with the law firm Tully Rinky. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WAPA.
2: Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series Lessons in Leadership what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, great man theory, the leader follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader, all of these are backward looking um, development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I, think, I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So, what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your, a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over two million employees. Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is Ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace. And they inspired others and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, Today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people We have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and Understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, My father was a civilian federal employee. Uh, He joined the federal government in the 1960s. John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask, not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him it inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service, which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all. But is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for... Um, three decades uh, I've led, this is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion, we serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And <clears throat> I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime. And uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service.
0: Grab a 30 day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.